0: Gara sat on her perch in the sky and watched her children as they played. They were still oblivious to the coming danger, but not for long, Gara thought, not for long. She began her campaign of warning by sending storms, making everyone more severe, everyone more rampant than the last. Violent winds howled as her children's homes shook, as the frames in the windows and doors threatened to tear loose. When this didn't work, She bombarded them with floods and tidal waves many stories high. The rooms in her children's houses flooded, and they were forced to wade through streets covered in muddy waters up to their ankles. The warning of danger, felt, was clear. She sat back on her perch in the sky and waited for her children to react. But her children simply looked at the destruction around them and threw up their arms. They cursed the skies, the ocean, the winds, the clouds. They did not take the calamities that had befallen them as warnings. They did not heed them beyond annoyance and anger. Bagara wasn't going to give up that easily. Decades went on like this. She was relentless. Her children's houses continued to shake with the terrible wind. Streets flooded as the sea rose and claimed their cities and towns. Until, one day... Exhausted by her efforts, Gara had to admit that she had failed her children and nothing could reverse the imbalance. It was too late. Her children had ignored all her warnings, met her pleas with scorn and denial. It had all been in vain. As the condition on Earth marked the point of no return, she knew that she could do nothing more to stop what was coming. An angry, Petulant part of her wanted to turn her back on her children like they had turned their back on her. She felt disappointed and hopeless. But they were her children, and she could not bring herself. Gara knew the cycle would reset. It always did. But the cost the cost of it would be hard to bear. No mother wants to see her children suffer. Gara sat on her perch in the sky. All she could do now was wait and watch as the end unfolded itself, and for the cycle to begin again upon a slate wiped clean. This has been your early morning gospel of Gara, Alethro's too, the year of chaos. May we tread lightly upon the earth today and every day henceforth. I wake to stiff feet and my head pounding in my skull. I bat the bug net out of the way and roll off the bed, letting out a loud moan. What time is it? I start making my way towards the window in the half-light of the room and ram my foot into my lek box, which is scattered there. Quickly, I scoop it up and plug its three-pronged plug into the outlet of the wave box by the window. Then I stand at the open window breathing deep gulps of morning air. I have no idea what time it is, though it is still dark out. A single thought digs into me, like a sliver of wood into skin, hot, alarming. Have I missed the morning gospel? My arm doesn't want to do the work, but just as I begin to churn the leck box, I can hear the familiar words echoing out into the hallway from the room next door. I'm not too late, but that was close. Fat fates befall those who do not let the morning gospel bring them to their wakened state in the morning. I once heard about a man who didn't churn his gospel three days in a row, and on that third day he drowned. The story goes that Gara was so upset with the man that she decided to test his devotion after missing his ears for three days in a row that morning, as the man was riding to his fishing post, Gara made beautiful maidens appear on the opposite river bank. The women beckoned the man to come be with them, and the man was so overcome by their beauty that he did as they said. He tried crossing the river, even though the other side was in the forbidden zone. His body was never found, and though I am not easily lured by beautiful women, I think it's still best not to miss my morning churn. As sleep wears off, I look down out onto the street below. Lit only by the morning stars about ready to turn in, the street is empty. The same words spill from many of the windows nearby, spill down into the barren street below, where not a single speck of dust is disturbed. The words of the gospel from a strange chorus, as the echo of the last word lingers as the next one is spoken. It feels like they are twisting around each other, all those words outside my window, playing catch. A strange feeling of comfort overcomes me as the gospel ends, knowing the same silence now lives in all those other rooms as well. I continue to watch the street below. Watch as the sun rises and the first New Yorkers start going about their day. No one seems in any particular hurry, and it feels like I'm lurking, watching in on their lazy morning movements. My cheeks reddened, I turn my gaze back to my own empty room. Since I am not due at the sheriff's station until ten o'clock, I have plenty of time to get cleaned up and presentable. I head downstairs and to the stable to see Moon and to grab my fishing pole that is still attached to her saddle hanging from a wall. Moon seems to have made friends with the horse in the stall beside her, a white and black mare. She greets me briefly before sticking her head back over the divider to see what her neighbor has going on. For a brief moment, I feel a strange jealousy, but then remember she is just a horse with the fishing rod dangling over my shoulder, I make my way towards the river. When I arrive, the small shore area is filled with dozens of people, and I resolve to arrive earlier the following day. I have to pay a young boy an entire cubic to watch my fishing rod and satchel. Fishing is now out of the question, unless I want to eat humans for breakfast. I wade into the water quickly, keeping an eye on my belongings Bumping into a young mother with my back turned. She mutters an apology but does not look up. Everyone around me is making it a point of keeping their eyes trained downward, and no one speaks, let alone waves. I remember the man from yesterday, his behavior now making a strange kind of sense. If everyone were waving to each other in the river all day, it would be completely overwhelming. Further, the reality that we were all swimming in a very small space with five dozen others would become inescapable. Since I only paid the young boy at the river for a few minutes of satchel watching, I soon find myself on my way back to the hotel, my bag empty and my stomach growling. When I arrive downstairs, I see Ilsa standing behind the desk. She seems pleased to see me, probably because I no longer appear primed and ready to rob the place. My black square neatly knotted around my neck. Hello, Deputy Rose. She smiles widely. You can call me Harper. Is there any breakfast? The river was too full to fish. I-, I mean, people. She laughs and I smile back at her. Unlike Ginley, she doesn't feel the need to act in complete exasperation around me. Yes, you can catch breakfast if you hurry. The dining room is right down the hall, opposite direction of your room. I nod and make my way towards where she's pointing. The room is large, and I find myself facing a table offering ten different dishes, recognizing three. Fish, fish, and the other, berries. Only a few other residents are lounging around the four large tables, and so I take some of both fish, the berries, and something that is cut into pleasing squares and is the color of sunset. I sit next to an older man, "'who seems enwrapped by the street-level view. "'As I sit, I can hear him muttering the words, "'So many of them,' from time to time, "'but we don't talk to each other, and otherwise sit quietly. "'I work my way through the first two fish, "'making note that they taste more or less the same. "'The berries are, as expected, sweet and delicious. "'The sunset squares, however, make my mouth pucker,' and after a single bite, I spit the horrible thing back onto the plate as delicately as possible. Then I stand to get rid of the remaining squares and my neat pile of bones. I watch a young man who has just finished his breakfast stand and take his plate to a large basket in the corner of the room to dispose of it. Just as I turn, something brushes past my leg. Startled, I poke my head under the table, palming the butt of my pistol, but whatever it was is now gone. Disconcerted at the possibility of wild fauna loose in the hotel, I walk over to the basket in the far corner. Enjoying our stay, are we? He has come out of nowhere, and for a moment I wonder if he was the thing that brushed against my leg. My arm stops where it is, outstretched, my plate hovering above several other dishes, smudged in the various shades of berries. Jinley is standing beside me, his brow furrowed. I am. We then both look down at the dish in my hand, which seems to be the reason for his discontent. Fishbone plates go into the other basket. Jinley takes a step back and points towards an exact replica in the opposite corner of the room. Sorry about that. Retracting my arm, I remind myself that I am the law, and that there is no reason I should have to apologize for fish bones in a wrong basket. Then I bring my plate over to the correct one and quickly make my way from the dining room down the hall. Ascending the stairs, something whooshes by my ankles, jumps, and nips at my fingers. A half-bite, half-kiss, as if the tiny creature is trying to lick the fish and berry juices from my dirty hands. Instinctively, I pull my arm away, and a small yelp escapes me. The small, black thing immediately gives up and flies up the stairs ahead of me. I run after it, but by the time I get to the top of the stairs and turn down the hallway, whatever it was has disappeared. Part of me wants to tell Ginley about the strange animal loose in his hotel, but it doesn't seem dangerous, and I plan to avoid the man as much as possible. Back in my room... I apply my bug paste. I check my satchel for the letter assigning me to Ronan Kane as my sheriff examiner, as well as my knife. Then I double-check, my gun is holstered correctly, and my small badge in the shape of the letter G is strapped tightly to the other side of my waist. As I leave the room, a small, not unpleasant shudder works its way through me like I'm shedding an outer layer too tight, leaving a useless part of myself behind. Somehow, I feel different as I walk back to the stairs, and then I'm at the bottom without having thought about it. The sheriff's station is only two streets north of the hotel. I try to make the short walk last as long as I can, but in the end I give up and arrive at the low-standing building half an hour early. It's not as prestigious, not as intimidating as I pictured it would be back in Stalford. Instead, It looks like most of the other buildings that line the street, with wood-paneled walls and chipped paint. The only difference is the word law, painted in dark gold with heavy black outline right above the entrance. I make my way inside, passing a deputy who is wrestling a morning drunk to the ground. There is a desk, same as there is in the hotel, and I make my way towards it, letting my hand slide into my satchel so I can pull out the letter quickly, if questioned. The man behind the large desk is bald and absentmindedly scratching at his chin when I approach. "'Hello. My name is Deputy Rose. I'm here for my sheriff's exam with Sheriff Kane.' He looks up at me with a dazed look, like he is processing all my words one by one. "'Right.' He says, eventually, looks at me with narrowed eyes, then tilts his head like a confused bear. "'He's in his office.' Someone just came in screaming about some crazy nonsense, and he's trying to calm the man down. Are you sure you're supposed to be here? Even though I expect it being questioned in this way, I myself doubting it ever since I opened the letter saying that I, at the age of 27 and after only two years of being a deputy, had not only been named a succeeding sheriff of Stalford, but also had been assigned to Ronan Kane of all sheriffs for my exam, Even though I, too, felt the situation to be highly improbable, I had just started to convince myself it was true. Now the doubt expressed on the bald man's face, as he eyes me up and down, makes me question everything all over again. Waves of hot uncertainty move through my body, as well as a strange urge to run back outside. But I swallow my doubt, and my face betrays nothing, as I quickly pull the letter from my satchel. Its official stamp prominently displayed, I hand it to the man behind the desk. He looks it over, rubs at his chin again, and then gestures for me to sit in one of the chairs that are scattered into a small, boxed-in area that looks like it's meant for horses, not humans. I'll let you know when he's done. Might be a while. He dismisses me easily and gets back to his paperwork. I smile, but turn quickly. "'Tears sting in the corners of my eyes, and I blink them away furiously. "'A feeling between shame and not belonging floods through me in one big surge. "'But I'm not the one who questions someone with an authentic letter,' I tell myself, "'and the feeling ebbs off. "'I am here now. "'I am here, and I am taking my sheriff exam with Ronan Gardam Kane.' "'With a small sigh, I let myself drop into a chair at the edge of the pen.' From there, I can see all the doors behind the big front desk that lead into the bowels of the law office. "'Who you waitin' for?' A small woman two chairs over from me, so tiny that I hadn't noticed her. She's pretty, but I get a strange sense of exhaustion looming about her, as well as a strange smell. "'Oh, just my training, Sheriff,' I say with pride and glance back towards the doors. "'I'm waiting for my husband.' She goes on, forcing me to turn back around. I wonder briefly if she is Ronan Kane's wife, but decide probably she is not. Is Ronan Kane even married? Does it matter? I realize I know very little about the man beyond his accomplishments pertaining to the law. And thanks to the grainy rendering on the weekly Outpost bulletin describing his bigger cases, I have only a vague idea of his appearance. Who's your husband? I return my gaze to the bald man at the desk. He's picking his nose. Willie Haino. Her voice quivers like he's bug fever. Sorry, I don't know him. Don't you work here? You have a gun. She leans closer as she says this, and I instinctively shield my weapon with my palm. I wasn't going to steal it. Insult it. she leans away from me and falls mute. The comings and goings of the New York Law Office is predictable, though a bit more chaotic than what I'm used to. A few drunks are brought in from the back area, including the woman's husband. I don't look up at her as she shuffles by me noisily, making an exaggerated point of not getting near me and my gun, moving the chair in front of me out of the way, giving my knees a great berth. A few people come in and tell the bald man of things that have been stolen from them, Pants taken right off the clothesline. Lack boxes left unattended by open windows, swooped out in broad daylight. One man has had an entire horse taken from right outside his own store. The bald man listens, takes notes. The people leave. At one point, a rather downtrodden couple, both of them women, enter into the station. When the bald man looks up, he sighs deeply, not concealing his mood towards them. The women tell the man of a friend who has gone missing. Their rank smell makes me want to pull my black square back up over my nose. But the bald man is being mean to them enough for both of us, so I just hold my breath instead. He says he'll think about looking into it, but then doesn't write anything down, and just stares up at them until they leave. When the door closes behind them, he waves the air in front of his nose and gives me a conspiratorial look, but I don't respond and he looks back down, busying himself with his work. Finally, after two hours have passed and several deputies have come and gone, asking for Cain just like myself but receiving the same answer, a very tall man appears from the door immediately behind the desk. I know it's Cain from the picture on the bulletin, and I hold my breath because my heart is doing something strange. It's like I'm drawn to him by some sort of force inside of me. "'Without hesitation, I rise and walk over to him. "'When I stand before him, I almost forget my name, "'but he knows it for me. "'He looks down at me, impossibly tall, "'with impossibly clear blue eyes, and says, "'Deputy Rose, my deputy for the next two weeks, "'like it's an observation, like I'm part of his landscape. "'That's me, ready to get started.' Kane looks over at the bald man,' And asks how long I've been waiting, and I can't help myself and say, Two hours, Sheriff Kane. But Kane doesn't chastise the man just, um, once, with a quick glance towards the desk. Instead, already one step towards the door, he says over his shoulder, We have to go. We possibly just caught a murder over in Western Quarter. My jaw drops, and as I follow him out the station, I can't help but whisper, holy gara, under my breath. A murder. On my first morning in New York City. I've never had a murder before. We head out to the stables behind the law office where I'm assigned a horse for the duration. Once saddled, we ride west towards the park. Kane seems pleased by my riding, which pleases me. After a few minutes, the park that separates the corridors spreads out to our left, and the New York narrow is to our right. The park itself looks to be mostly swamp. A few large mounds rise above the brown muck, themselves dry and almost green on top. On the mounds, people have erected tents and small wood cabins. We ride along the edge, avoiding the swamp itself until gravel streets once again appear ahead of us, and we turn down into the maze of them. Catching up to Kane, I try to get more information. Who was murdered? The police horse flows evenly under me, opposite to how I feel as we move towards whatever we're moving towards. A woman, is all he says, and his clipped tone makes me fall back in line behind his horse. I wonder if I'm going to pass my exam if I ask too many questions. As we move deeper into the web of narrow streets that make up Western Quarter, Ginley proves once again not to be a liar. Unlike Eastern Quarter, with its smells of too many people, Western Quarter smells strongly like the swampy park that divides the city, and I breathe through my mouth as we ride on. The houses on this side of the island also appear more dilapidated, more infiltrated by the dampness, walls bending outward like the backs of startled animals. We follow down two streets, then two more, then three to the right and to the left, The many puddles make the horses dance as we ride at a quick pace. Three more turns, and I have no idea where we are. This should be it. Kane dismounts abruptly. Sorry if I sounded angry earlier. I almost forgot that I'm supposed to be training you, so you should take in the scene without my input. We'll just work this case like any other, slow and steady. He smiles at me encouragingly, but I say nothing. We tie up the horses and enter into a tall, narrow building that appears to be empty. We make our way up the narrow stairs. Tight, moist walls around us as we climb. Dust kicks up around us, dances in the narrows of light that seep in through the cracks. The place is filthy. The man who found her says he was trying to find his mother, whom he claims tends to get lost. She's very old. I sense skepticism in his voice. You don't believe him? I think it's more likely he was chasing down dinner, but he's not going to come into the offices of the law and admit to hunting. So we're going with the story of being the devoted son. Personally, I don't care what he poaches, as long as he reports a body if he comes across one. I want to ask Kane if he suspects the man who found the woman of her murder, but decide on reticence for now. Finally we get to the top of the winding stairs. The top floor lets us out into a large room, as if several walls were knocked down to make the space more expansive. Across the threshold of the door, the dust is wiped clean like a dividing line. Outside is filth. Inside, someone looks to have cleaned every nook and corner. There is a smell, sweet and sulfur. I can hear birds singing outside through the open window, as I walk into the room behind Kane, Red paints the floor in the shape of three large, crisp circles. The blood has dried and thickened at their edges. Part of me wants to turn around. The narrow stairs suddenly seem cozy. Kane, on the other hand, strides into the room without hesitation, then starts taking notes on a little pad he pulls from his back pocket. Meanwhile, I trail behind him, "'as if I can put it off. "'My excitement has waned. "'Don't step in any of the blood,' "'he says over his shoulder like it needs to be said. "'Slowly, I walk further out into the room, "'my eyes darting between the giant puddles of blood "'that corral us both now. "'Where's the woman?' "'My voice comes out in a croak, "'so much for the big bad city sheriff in me. "'I have to blink to focus.' even though the room is well lit by the strong afternoon sun. Bright beams through windows that look like they've never been suspended with glass. Looking up at the walls, I can see that there are words scrawled above each one of the bloody outlines on the floor, as if the words are meant to reflect in the rufescent puddles beneath them. On the wall to my left, the word, dirty. Straight ahead of me, the word, filthy. And finally, The word whore is scrawled to my right, up high on the yellowing paint. Where is she? I repeat under my breath, taking a few quick steps to stand immediately beside Cain. He turns as if he is about to answer my question, but his eyes focus on something above my head, and I turn to match his gaze. Instinctively, I grab a hold of his shoulder and tug. A brief lapse of inhibition, he turns to face me, Annoyance flashes across his face, like I've broken his concentration. Then he returns his gaze upward, his breath grazing my lips and nose. Then we just stand there, staring at her, trying to make sense. The woman looks to be my age. She even has similarly unusual light-colored hair. And, for a brief, insane moment, I feel like I'm looking up at myself, except that her lips are blue and her insides have been scooped out from below her navel. Two red, long tubes protrude from the large hollow. The tubes appear to be pinned to the inseams of her thighs, like she's using them as a saddle. From the red tubes dangle white, puffy appendages, like tiny white clouds, stirrups for her saddle. What a terrible thought. Her tubes are nailed to her thighs. My voice is clear now. The croaking in it has vanished. The woman's eyes are empty, pupils aimed at something up high, while her mouth, slightly open and blue-lipped, makes her look like she's speaking to someone standing above her. Pleading, maybe. Kane doesn't say anything, and I realize I'm still grasping a shoulder and release it, embarrassed. "'How does she make you feel?' Cain looks down at me with sudden, glaring intensity. The skin on my arms feels cold beneath my thin shirt. Is this part of the exam? I think someone wanted to shame her. I try to read his expression at my assessment. The words on the wall, the positioning, forcing her to look at them even after she's dead. Cain looks at me, his eyes narrowing. But how does she make you feel? He emphasizes the last word, and I realize this is the test. I stare at him, confused, not knowing what he wants me to say. Again, he looks at me with annoyance. Again, I worry about failing the exam and stammer something about hoping she didn't suffer, hoping that she wasn't alive while it had been done to her. Nervousness moves my lips. Before I can stop myself, I mutter that it's easy for me to empathize with her since she looks so much like me. He looks back up at the woman suspended, a weak smile playing across his lips. I suppose she does. Then, looking back down, the initial intensity extinguished, he says, I agree with your initial assessment. He wanted her to see this. It's ritualistic or personal somehow. He wanted to shame her. He? I wipe the nape of my neck with a cold hand, thankful to not have screwed up completely just yet why he? Can you see a woman doing this? I shake my head, but I wouldn't rule it out right away. Fair enough. Kane looks at the body on the wall and back at me. My mouth tightens, but he doesn't say anything more about the similarities. Instead, he walks back and forth across the room a few more times while taking notes and avoiding the bloody circles. Dirty, filthy whore. He shakes his head, We need to figure out who she is before we can figure out who did this. I'll go back to the office and bring some deputies back here to get her down. As he says this, I realize this means he's going to leave me here alone. I want to protest, but I can't retrieve the deputies. I have no idea where we are. You all right with that? We can't have anyone disturbing the scene. I'll be back as soon as I can. Yes, that's fine. My voice manages to stay even, collect it. The memory of my dream, of failing the exam over and over again, is still stuck to my bones. I'll make sure no one gets in, I assure him. Kane nods and heads down the stairs in his heavy boots. I can hear the door bang against its hinges, but with too much force to latch closed. Then I hear the horses hooves as they hit the ground outside, quickly growing faint. As the sound of the hooves recedes, I walk into the center of the room, pacing back and forth, emulating Cain. It feels like the air has been sucked out with him. A deep quiet settles like dust over everything. I try to imagine what must have happened here, possibly just hours before we arrived. Stopping in the middle of the room, I stand still for a long time, trying to absorb the details. The beams of light through the windows continue to move with time. An hour passes, then another. The smell of the body and the blood start to feel like they're sticking to me, pushing through my clothes and into my skin. Eventually, I sit down in the middle of the room, stare up at the words. How many times did I hear the word whore growing up? It went from being a bad, dirty word when I was very young. "'to something volleyed at my mother "'any time she and my father were in the same room together. "'But she never let it go, never backed down in a fight, "'especially once my father screamed whore at her. "'You stupid fucking whore. "'You made me bring her into this world. "'The extent of his fanaticism, "'much like the meaning of the word whore, "'didn't dawn on me until I was much older. "'At the time, I was five. I knew that my father didn't like me and that my mother tolerated me. I also didn't think it was strange that my father was home all day, meeting with his friends in the backyard, while my mother was never around. My mother was never home because she had to work for both of them. My father refused to pay my birth tax. Why waste money on you whore and your evil spawn, he'd say, often right before he made a point of storming out. My mother ended up working for both. Being independent in that way was a blessing in disguise when, around the time I was about to turn six, my father was arrested for trying to burn down the school. I was in spooling class when it happened. I saw him and two of his grubby friends get pulled across the meadow. Everyone saw. The law's guns glittered in the sun as he fought and spit, trying to get away from them like an animal. I tried to look at the shiny guns instead of my father, how the sun reflected off them through the large window. Then someone in my class recognized him as my father. School was hard after that. Many of the letters he sent from prison are about that day. He used to write that he hadn't hated me, that he had simply hated all children, and that this was misguided. He'd been a lost man." None of it constitutes an apology, I realize, sitting in the middle of the dank room, staring at the word whore, written in a rusty red, high above, below a moldy ceiling. To be honest, I'm still not sure I believe him. I never knew him as the father that wasn't a true believer, a fanatic, as someone who didn't hate me merely for existing. She's going to kill us all, you fucking whore. The sun continues to dip. With the passing afternoon, a strange feeling of intimacy towards the woman grows within me. You dirty, filthy whore. You just had to get fertilized, didn't you? Strange feelings from long ago. What did he do to you? I ask the woman on the wall. It was a man. Cain was right. The thing he could not control. Like my father not being able to stop my mother from having me. The killer took that from her, hung it on a wall for all to see. Calling her names is just extra. The woman on the wall doesn't answer. My legs aching, I stand and I move beneath her and lean against the doorframe. By the time Kane and the others arrive, the darkness and voices of my childhood have woven themselves into me afresh. "'I know I will need to leave this room sooner rather than later "'if I am to shake them off completely. "'I would kill for a dip in the river "'or even the swamp in the park at this point.' "'Apologies about their late arrival are passed along with pitying glances. "'There was a brawl at Fanny and Jack's. "'Excuses, I think, feeling frail. "'One of the deputies mutters, "'It's not like she was going anywhere.' as he moves by me and into the room. It's not clear if he means me or the woman on the wall, but I make a point of turning away because I'm afraid of hurting him. Thankfully, their comments subside once they take in the scene and the sketch artist gets to work. While they mill about in reverent silence, I excuse myself and make my way down the stairs. Out in the street below... Air that doesn't smell of the woman and of her blood fills my lungs like medicine. You all right? Kane has followed me out. I'm... yes. It's easy to lie to him. If I am to be sheriff of an entire outpost, I need to be all right seeing a dead body. But that doesn't mean he can leave me waiting, either. Was that some sort of test? I say quietly... Anger and impatience, pent up from the many hours spent alone, heavy in my voice. What was? Leaving me here, with her, was that some kind of sheriff test? I don't mean to sound mocking, but suppression fails. He looks genuinely surprised by this. No, Gara, no. He looks at me, almost ashamed. You don't honestly think I would do that? I thought this would be good, a good experience for both of us. I look at him, confused. What do you mean? Is he talking about the murder? What's wrong with him? You're my first, he says, then adds quickly. First trainee for sheriff. I've never had the time before now to take someone on. He looks genuine, his deep blue eyes pleading and I want to let him off the hook. The softness in his voice is giving me the same strange feeling in my chest when I first saw him at the station. Annoyed with myself, I relent. Well, maybe next time you can stay with the body. He barks out a short, relieved laugh. (laughs) Well, so far your performance has been stellar, if that makes you feel any better. It does, but I don't let on. The urge to get away from this place, from her, gnaws at me, my shoulders, makes me want to walk in any direction that leads away from here. This has been a rough day for me. Honesty, I realize, is the fastest way home. It has, he seconds. I think I should probably bring you back. There isn't much else we can do until tomorrow, anyway. He disappears to let his deputies know we're headed back. The sun is setting, and we ride silently through the narrow streets. There are few people. The ones we encounter look hunched, and when they see our badges, they scurry away or fly upstairs like birds. As we ride past the park, we can see huddled groups standing on the knolls in the evening dusk. It's as if they're assembling for a nightly roll call before turning into their tents and shacks. When we get to the eastern quarter, We drop our horses back off at the stable, and Kane offers to walk me back to the hotel. It's two streets, I can manage. If you say so. He nods at me and heads the other way without asking again. Moon has missed me and ignores her stablemate, which gives me a strange sense of satisfaction. I lie against her in the hay for a while, but can't find comfort. On my way back to my room... I don't stop for a beer, but go straight up. Dark birds fly past my window as I sit on the edge of my bed and pull the boots from my stinking feet with some effort. The birds' flapping wings shimmer in flashes of purple and green as the sun hits them from different angles mid-flight. Their beauty is haunting. There's water in a jug gently or whoever tidies my room during the day, has left on the table next to my wave box, and I wet myself under my arms and the back of my neck. Still feeling dirty, but too exhausted to care, I slide beneath the bug net and the blankets, letting out a long sigh of relief. Without my worries from the night before, sleep comes easy. Moon has made a friend in the barn, and I haven't beaten anyone bloody. But with sleep come dreams more vivid than ever before. The woman on the wall appears in all of them, except that in my dreams, she is me, and I am her. Suspended from a wall in an empty room, I wait for her to come find me. But even when she is me, she remains in her own body. Ghostly white, drained of all her blood, she walks into the room, her footsteps soundless. She stops, turns, stares up at me. After a long pause, as if she has decided to play along, play the good deputy, she cocks her head to one side, raises an eyebrow, as if she is contemplating my injuries or mocking me. I can't tell. Pinned to the wall, I have to strain to see what she's seeing, what she's raising that eyebrow for. When I look down, I find myself protruding grotesquely. I look back up at her, her eyebrow still raised, and she smiles at me, knowingly, then slowly pulls a knife out from behind her back. Our eyes remain engaged as she jumps suddenly, like an animal, wielding the knife in her hand, pointing at my protruding belly. I scream, and just as she is about to slash me wide open, There is a loud scratching sound. I realize the dream is a dream. The scratching allows for slits of reality to seep in, jolting me from my massacre. For a moment, I'm sitting in my hotel bed, still screaming. The scratching sound against my door is jarring, and I can't begin to comprehend. But the next moment, I take my next breath and stop screaming. The scratching stops and is replaced by a short, gentle pounding that disappears down the hall. Panting and crying, I pull my knees to my chest, the bug net rocking side to side as I tremble, my forehead slick with sweat. Outside my room, I can hear some of the other guests opening their doors and conferring with one another in the hall. Did you hear that? What was that? But as the silence extends, they soon get bored, and return to their rooms, doors shut closed one by one. Afraid to go back to sleep, I sit at the edge of the bed, the bug net dragged off-center and suspended over me as far as it can go. Still shaking, I stare at the stars, their permanence comforting. Eventually, exhaustion slumps me back onto the bed, and I dream of nothing.